Welcome to The Laws of Style, featuring conversations on creativity, fashion, and the law from the leading edge of our economy and culture. Hosted by noted fashion lawyer, Douglas Hand. Hello, and welcome to The Laws of Style. I'm Douglas Hand, your host, fashion lawyer and fashion law professor. And for this episode, I'm joined by celebrated jewelry designer, Ippolito Rostagno. Ippolita, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. <laughs> so you were born and raised in Italy in some of the more beautiful parts of a beautiful country, I'll, I'll add. Yeah. And then during the 80s, you moved to, of all places, Los Angeles, California. Um, and later in the 80s to New York City, when New York City was, was a grittier place, I am told. Unpack for us what was behind those transitions, educational or otherwise, and, and how did those transitions, which I think most listeners will think of as, as pretty, pretty drastic, uh, inform starting your business? To, uh, so to address the first part of the question, which is how do you migrate from someplace that is so aesthetically uh, beautiful? And, you know, and honestly, I must say that growing up in a place where the aesthetics are so dominant had a very, very sort of profound effect on my outlook. But also uh, it is so um, monolithically beautiful uh, and especially coming from Florence where there is a history of art advocacy and patronage uh, on top of just being beautiful. Um, I needed to, I needed to sort of take a break from that. I needed to have a different experience. Uh, and also I felt a more urban experience because uh, typically in Italy, you don't migrate away from where you're born. You know, you, you're born somewhere, you grow up there, you stay there, <laughs> you have kids there, you have grandkids there. The grandparents and, are downstairs, the parents yeah. are upstairs. Yeah, and, and society is very, a much built around the organization of the family and the community, which uh, is usually, I've always interpreted it as a good thing, meaning you never have to make an appointment to go to somebody's house because somebody's gonna definitely be there. It's gonna be a grandparent, you know, somebody's there, there's a large family. Right. So, um, so I felt like I needed a, a different type of experience on top of which my mother's American so uh, I did have some experience of America, meaning we came here to visit my grandparents. So even though I grew up there, I spoke English. So I came here, but I arrived in New York first and thought I'm still too close. This is still, still too cosmopolitan. It still feels too European. I need to go further away. So that's how I ended up in Los Angeles. And when I got to Los Angeles, I really felt like, ah, okay, this is America. You know, nobody knows you, you know, you don't have to, uh, you know, worry about the legacy of where you come from, you know, it's right. And uh, so this idea that you can invent yourself, you know, that nobody questions uh, your uh, credentials, mm -hmm. of course, at some point you have to show them, <laughs> but, but I felt that that was like such a fascinating uh, counterpart to what I was used to, which is nobody is really interested in you and your point of view. They're much more interested in where you come from, who your family is, what your roots are, you know, and you don't uh, wake up in the morning and invent 
a career for yourself that is not a that isn't that doesn't run in your family huge transition in life and and opening up of all of those potential doors what what led you to art and jewelry design well i had studied sculpture at the art institute of florence and so i had uh not only did i grow up in a very craft centric town i was also very interested in craft and uh the school that i went to was a craft school more than an art school. So um, they had an academic curriculum attached to what is essentially five hours a day of sculpting or ceramics or other crafts. And, um, and I studied sculpture particularly, so that's what my area of expertise was and, or rather sort of my experience. Uh, and the, another interesting sort of, uh, difference between the States and Europe is that copying is a central activity to your artistic practice. So the school that I went to had one of the largest uh, gypsotheque, which is a library of um, plaster molds of all the sculpture, the famous sculptures of the Renaissance. Mm -hmm. And so you spent, I spent years and years just basically copying, you know, the idea being, you know, how are you supposed to learn if you don't copy the best, you know, like, and you learn by copying exactly how they resolved certain, you know, either technical or, or formal issues. So then you arrive here and there is an enormous emphasis and I'm still sort of steeped in my craft men mentality. And instead here, there's the completely opposite point of view, which is, the only thing that matters is the idea. And it's actually acceptable for an artist to not even have craft, you know, that, that the craft is really secondary. Mm -hmm. And I felt that that was like such a, such a, an enormous uh, switch, you know, to be able to get into that mindset. Uh, at first it was very liberating. Mm -hmm. But because my practice is so much about making and because my experience was that the best ideas always come out of the making process, meaning you set out to do one thing and then while you're working, something else happens or you know, it falls apart or you, know, like you have to sort of pivot and that's when you know, new ideas come out, right. which are very, very difficult to arrive at if you're just drawing them on a piece of paper, let's say. Yeah. You know, what's interesting or ironic somewhat is that the legal systems between Europe and the States in terms of protecting copying for design very much in Europe favor the artist relative to the body of law that has developed here in the United States. And I wonder, you know, having that background in sculpture, um, obviously having a commercial enterprise now, I mean, you founded the brand uh, Ippolita in, in 1999. So the brand has been going for a while. Where, where do you think that line between creating a work of art and creating a functional item rests when it comes to jewelry and other fashion items? Well, this is one of my pet peeves. So I could go on and on and you can, <laughs> you can stop me. But I, I feel like if I hadn't done something as rigorous as, you know, craft training, I couldn't have developed sort of that muscle of easy pivot, 
you know, that you need to have sort of ingrained in your, in your sort of thinking when you're in business. And so uh, when I say pet peeve, like one of the things that I am, that I advocate around a lot is the idea that education uh, really needs to be, um, needs to incorporate elements of all aspects of business uh, and craft and hand-eye coordination and appreciation for aesthetics and uh, technology. Like these are not separate disciplines. You know, they have to be, they have to be taught in, you know, A, as equally meaningful and as equally informative one to the other. Because, uh, you know, if you go to art school, uh, you know, and you learn exclusively art disciplines, then you come out and you don't know what to do with it. You don't know how to exist in the world, you know, and the same goes for if you go to med school or if you become a lawyer, usually, you know, your course of study is too narrow you know, to really be successful and sympathetic to the complexities of, you know, what's going on in the world right now. That is a common complaint from students at FIT, Parsons, St. Martin's, you know, RISD that I hear all the time that really they were never educated in the business realities of, of starting the business of realizing uh, you know, their, their artistic inclinations and their, their, their stylistic inclinations through a business. Um, because as you know, and we'll get into, fashion is, is a tough business. It's one of the toughest out there. Um, Not only that, but I was coming with a particular uh challenge because uh, not only in Italy generally, but in my family particularly, uh, money was frowned upon, you know, like, that's vulgar, you know, the idea that you would actually want to make money, you know, is sort of very, you know, like we don't talk about that. <laughs> it's yeah, almost like yeah. pornography, you know, don't talk about that in polite conversation. Matter of where the goalposts are set, I think, because so many kids were coming out of schools in the 90s and aughts, I feel, and wanting to become a billion dollar brand, mm -hmm. you know, and, and that is, making a ton of money, right? Going public and making a ton of money versus creating what I'll say is an economically sustainable brand that pays all of its workers a fair wage, pays the founder something so that they can you know, live a life, but doesn't do more than that. Doesn't sort of have any necessity to show hockey stick growth that investors wanna see, but does and continues to do a beautiful thing and can do it because that, that, that engine is humming. So it is interesting because I do think a lot of the school's ethos, you know, historically has been, well, this is art and the commerce side of it, go get an MBA. You also bring up an interesting point that is, I think felt more so in the New York uh, community than possibly elsewhere, where you're so close to the financial, you know, to finance in general, that the even the idea that you would start a business with an investor like from the get-go to me was always uh like uh, you're jumping the gun because like what is your business you know like first you have to have an idea and then you have to know that that idea is relevant and matters and might actually succeed and you need to test that idea before what before like 
making a business plan on a sheet of paper and, uh, you know, and giving it a go and hoping that it goes well. Uh, you know, that that's uh, like finding white space is something that for me happened, you know, A, accidentally and B, was only clear after the fact. Uh, you know, like, oh, I, I see why I succeeded, you know, because you know, let's, I did go, let's go into that. What 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 was that white space? Uh, you know, how did you move into it? If you want to start with 1999 or the years that followed. So uh, after a few years in California, I decided I was ready for civilization again. <laughs> so, so I moved back to New York. And at this point, I had been kind of out of the craft uh, arena for a while and felt like I had to get my hands dirty again. And, but I couldn't afford an art studio. So I bought a jeweler's bench and said, I'm going to just like get, you know, keep myself busy. And I started making jewelry and the, 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 tray, the tools are similar, you know, in miniature. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I was teaching myself on the job how to make jewelry and using all the techniques, you know, in miniature, you know, uh, lost wax casting and, you know, all these different techniques uh, of fabrication. And then uh, I decided, wait a second, if I'm gonna make some jewelry, even if it's just, you know, for fun, quote unquote, uh, let me see what's out there, you know? And because I came from Italy, I have uh, sort of a fewer better things uh, approach to life that is very much part of the Italian ethos, you know, um, you, you, you know, you always wonder when you go to Italy, why everybody is so beautifully dressed and, and it's like, I know they don't make a ton of money. <laughs> how does this, how do they manage? But it, they manage because this is a sort of an accepted cultural, you know, behavior to buy something really beautiful, made out of beautiful materials that lasts for 20 years. And the idea is that you don't buy and throw away, buy and throw away, you buy for keeps. So even the choices that you make, you know, if you look at clothing or accessories or, you know, things that would be considered disposable here, there, uh, both uh, the aesthetic, uh, A, first of all, it has to be um, classic enough to last a long time. Mm -hmm. So you're never going to see something that is like completely of the moment and that's it, you know, because, you know, you, there's just not enough money to go around to invest in those things. So, um, so anyway, I, that was my point of view. Uh, and I came from art and craft and not from fashion. So I really didn't know anything about the fashion world, even though I was from Florence, but I didn't, I wasn't in that, I wasn't in that world. So I sort of looked around and another interesting difference is that here you have multi-brand environments that don't exist over there. Over there, you all have mono brands, have their own store, their own identity, and you go from shop to shop or you only gravitate towards the ones that speak to you. So here, uh, so I walked into Bergdorf and, you know, and it was like a Mecca of ideas. And we're talking about 25 years ago and so, or more. And, um, and it was interesting at that time for me also because it was, the assortments were much more uh, eclectic and idea driven. 
and small. There were like lots of smaller designers. And you could tell that, you know, these garments were like not for everybody, but they, they were really trying to shine a light on a certain idea, a certain concept. And to have so many of them, you know, in one environment was, was uh, very interesting to me. So I, um, I thought, okay, well, this is the context that I am, this is the context. And if I were to make jewelry, what, what, what jewelry would I make, you know, that goes with this idea driven, uh, you know, sort of very unique point of view. So uh, I said, okay, so I looked around at the jewelry and the jewelry was, was terrible. Uh, meaning uh, it was extremely uh, black and white, meaning there was high jewelry, mm -hmm. uh, very fancy occasional stuff, you know, diamonds and diamond encrusted, you know, things that you kind of wouldn't struggle to figure out where you would wear them. Uh, and then there was costume jewelry, which was sort of fun, but, um, uh, you know, throwaway. Mm -hmm. So, um, I was, uh, I was, that was one thing that like, I love the costume jewelry, but the idea that you're essentially buying something that you already know when you're purchasing it, that you're going to throw it away. Like that was like very upsetting to me <laughs> because there's still huge design content, a lot of, you know, creativity, a lot of labor, a lot of ingenuity in putting those things together. And yet you're producing waste. You know, it's, it kind of, it was, that idea was very upsetting. So just personally, I mean, it wasn't even a, a moral, you know, an ethical thing, you know, back then, certainly. Uh, and plus, I was quite young. Uh, it was just like a, a personal thing. Like, no, I want to do something that, you know, is going to last forever. I, don't, I want to do something in that same vein, you know, meaning that has all those characteristics of being fun, that you're, you have an emotional sort of immediate attraction to it. But you can also tell instantaneously that it's going to last. You'll love it forever. It's classic enough, all those things. Yeah. So I went home and I said, okay, I'm just going to do things that I would want to wear, you know, like forget about the context. Uh, and, and I went back to Bergdorf with my, you know, 12 things. And I said, can I talk to somebody here that, you know, wants to buy jewelry? <laughs> you know, and they said, oh, that's charming, but we don't do it that way. Uh, but since you're here, right. you know, why don't you show us what you have? And that was the beginning, you know, and that was the, you know, the beginning of my story. Wow. Wow. So that was late nineties, early aughts, uh, and the business thrived. Um, in 2007, you, in, and I'm not sure what led up to that, if there were, if there were rounds of investment that came in, but, but you sold the company in 2007, and I'm not sure if that was outright control or, or the, the particulars of that to Castanea Partners, who is a known private equity firm that does make quite a few fashion and lifestyle uh, investments. What was that process like? Because uh, I had started in such a unplanned manner, uh, and the business really grew on its own merit. You know, like the product itself, you know, like you can imagine with a name like Ipolita, you know, people would walk up to a case in Bergdorf and say, 
Okay, I can't pronounce that, but I love that necklace. <laughs> and, that, and that's really how it took off. And then because it was Bergdorf and Bergdorf was the reference point for so many other uh, stores in the country, people were, you know, oh, you know, what's new? Let me go see what's new. Oh, that's new. I've never seen that. Okay, let's, uh, you know, let's start carrying that too. And all of a sudden I was just um, caught up in just making sure that I could produce, uh, uh, you know, to fill demand. And, you know, but the thing is that it happened gradually. So it didn't happen like overnight, you know, 4,000, you know, things, you know, ordered overnight. It's just, you know, as much as I could produce. So, I could deal with learning how to finance it, learning how to produce it, learning how to keep up, you know, learning how to ship it, learning all these things, you know, in tandem with the growth. Mm -hmm. uh, but it wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't until it got to a certain scale where precious metal prices started to have uh, a significant, you know, impact on all the decision-making process. And uh, I can't remember when this happened exactly, but you know there started to be like huge fluctuations in the prices of, of gold, mm -hmm. and uh, and you know and so I had to start buying futures and like and it's like okay you know what this is actually not my expertise, so I need to find a partner you know to sort of help me navigate this, and so that's when uh, you know and again you know, in, in some sort of naive way, I was learning on the job. So Castanea had um, been a prior owner of Neiman's uh, and Neiman's was my biggest customer. So we got introduced and it just seemed like a natural sort of union. Mm -hmm. And I kind of, you know, didn't uh, pay that much attention, you know, just sort of thinking, I don't know, it'll all work out, we're friends, <laughs> you know. And then, uh, you know, and then you discover along the road that you possibly have completely different points of view on, you know, what you were talking about at the, at the outset, which is I could, have, I could be okay with being small. You know, I didn't have to be big. I didn't have to comp my numbers, you know, year over year and, you know, have growth for the sake of growth. Uh, so I, but you know, at this, at the same time, you're thinking, oh, maybe, maybe I haven't been ambitious enough, or maybe I didn't, uh, you know, maybe I just didn't know what I didn't know, you know, and maybe I should sort of pursue this, uh, sort of different point of view and course of action. It's also, and not that you at all surrounded yourself with the wrong people. But as an organization grows and you professionalize, right? So you bring in a CFO who has a finance background and a COO and these people, they've been taught in a milieu where profit is really everything and growth is really everything. And so they don't even have the, the, the counterpoint of, well, there's, a, there's another path here where I don't make my bonus. <laughs> <laughs> and the company's profitability doesn't increase, but 20 years from now, we'll still be doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing wrong with that. It just kind of is what it is. People that come out of business schools and law schools, they're, they're, they're trained that way. And that is, um, that is the goal. 
So, so they came in and, and, and took a controlling stake. I guess I'd love to, to know in that process, did the issue that you named the brand, that, that your name, your first name, uh, was the trademark, did that come up? Were there non-competes involved? Was it difficult for you individually to sell knowing that that brand was intimately associated with you? Yeah, again, I think that, you know, it was very much a live and learn kind of thing, meaning when I started, the whole reason my brand is called Ipolita is because they put, you know, Bergdorf, you know, I literally had 12 things and they put it in this little tiny case. And, you know, when I went there to see my things in the case displayed, it only had Ipolita there. And I was like, what happened to my last name? <laughs> you know, where's my last name? Like, this is terrible. Where's my last name? It only says my first name. And they said, oh, well, the case is too little. It didn't fit. So we just put your first name, you know? And so that was it, you know, that's, that's the history of how the line is called Hippolyta. So when, uh, when the deal with Casanea happened, you know, of course there was no going back, you know, like you can't change your brand name. Uh, and so, I was thinking, well, how am I going to possibly exclude the fact that I can apply my talents to many different things? You know, so, I mean, Ipoita is my name. I'm not going to change my name. You know, so how do you deal with that? And, and in fact, it's very, very complicated. And, um, you know, afterwards, I thought, oh, I wonder if I should, if I would counsel somebody to not call the line with their name specifically for this reason, because it's, you know, you know, quote unquote dangerous, because if you have to sell your company, you have to sell your name with it. But, uh, you know, and I haven't quite resolved, you know, on that score, uh, what the best course of action is, because, you know, I guess I, I had a more, I'm an artist point of view, you know, like, and so therefore, uh, you know, it wouldn't make sense for me to not author my work. Yeah. you know, to, to call it something random, you know? So it kind of really depends on the inception of the business, you know, like the inception for me was very aligned with my aesthetic and my ideas and my sort of intense interest on creating a lifelong vocabulary, yeah. you know? And if I, but you know, nowadays, if I were to start a company and of course, now that I've been in business for a long time and I am constantly spotting sort of opportunities, that's a completely different thing. You know, it's like, yes, I don't call those things. I, you know, I. Back to the, back to the eponymous brand, you know, uh, pickle, I'll say, I, I, I will offer up that I uniformly advise brands or founders, I should say, mm -hmm. before, if I have the good fortune to have them in my conference room before they filed for a trademark and decided on a brand name, to try to, to think through the issues of legacy, the issues of, of the investor's perspective of, of needing a non-compete, of needing the founder with the brand. And are these the people that you want to, to die with? you know, live and die with. 
um, because it rarely, you know, we, you probably watched Halston and you probably saw the documentary. I mean, that's, I push people to that as a real life experience, but, but from a legal perspective, I've dealt with it with many, many clients and, and many of them do come from that artistic background where it is completely knee jerk. Of course, the most authentic thing is to name the line yourself and you a great example, you were your own muse. So of course you would name it after yourself, but, um, a couple of hypos and anecdotes are useful just to have people recognize, ooh, yeah, I didn't think that that might be an issue. So a decade later, and maybe some of the personal uh, desire to, to have control back was behind it, but you bought, you bought the brand back. What, uh, what was behind that? Again, what was that process? Was it smooth? Was it thorny? You know, it was bumpy, but they are very decent people, you know, so it wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't like as bad as some stories you hear. Um, you know, it was, it was just surprising, mostly, you know, it mostly it's just like all a big surprise if you've never been through it, you know, like such a, you know, such a roller coaster. And like you were uh, saying a minute ago, when you start off, you know, you start off with the best of intentions and you don't really even truly believe that things could go wrong because the intent is, is honorable, you know? Uh, but, you know, things, you know, relationships break up for many reasons. It's not, you know, and it's never the same ones, you know, so. And not always uh, for that's the other thing that yeah, and it wasn't, so it wasn't, wasn't really a character issue. It was, you know, a business plan, you know, sort of divergence, meaning they would have liked the business to go in one direction and I wanted it to go in a different direction. And, and for me, I, I think the greatest difficulty was the brand. It's not, I didn't have a uh, moral bias, let's say about how pure and wonderful my brand was and I didn't want to go down market. It's just that the brand, that's the brand, you know, like, right. you know, it cannot be diluted because that's a completely different customer. And, and I don't know that customer, you know, <laughs> I know this customer and I can design forever for this customer, but I don't know that customer. And so therefore, uh, and, you would think that that's not a hard thing to understand, but you know, you not everything, you can't wish for things to happen you know, and then hope that they work out. You know, that, yeah. you know, I've, I've always been extremely pragmatic in my approach to business, you know, like you never, you always take risks, but you never take a risk that you couldn't recover from, you know? So you're, I'm always like, looking to throw myself into different areas and different ideas. But, you know, I'm always thinking, okay, if this goes completely wrong, is it going to put me out of business? You know? And so if, if the answer is no, then I can try it, you know? Right. Well, speaking of the business and, and, and the designs, um, maybe walk us through your design process or the, and, or the current line. We'll throw some images up of the current line, but um, you know, how do you come up with these creations? And we've already touched on a few of your, you know, your, your hallmarks, which are, which are lasting uh, a mindfulness of, of the materials 
and of sustainability. But how do you weld those all together, no pun intended, and, and, and do it in a way that, that speaks to that customer that's yours? Uh, so I mentioned a few times in the conversation that I have a vocabulary. And that is, in the case of jewelry design, uh, really one of the keys, meaning you're not starting from scratch you know, uh, every season, you know, oh, let me think up a new idea. Because, uh, you know, differently from apparel, uh, which has a very fast cycle and is very much tied sort of to the zeitgeist and what's going on right this minute, uh, jewelry, the manufacturing, the making, <laughs> the thinking about it, the whole process is so much longer that you kind of have to be disconnected from, from that. Mm -hmm. And you have to therefore have your own vision. And at the beginning, you don't know what that vision is because it really comes out of uh, practice. So you make 10 things and then you say, okay, if these 10 things are really only like these two, and then you make 10 more and they say, okay, these two fit with the first two. Okay, now I've got four, but I've got 50 things that don't belong, you know? and and you know, so slowly over time, you sort of focus or you hone in on what exactly are the things that are recognizable and what are the things that continue to interest you. And uh, because in order to sustain a business, you're, you have to sustain your interest in, in what you're doing and you have to evolve while at the same time sort of sticking to your guns, especially from uh, an artistic point of view. And, you know, I've, you know, I say this a lot, but, you know, it's a discipline. It's a real discipline sticking to your knitting, you know, and not getting distracted with a million, you know, sort of ideas that are floating around. So because I'm such a craft first uh, person, a lot of the ideas come out of the materials themselves. So aside from the metal vocabulary, which, uh, you know, there were a few things that were very key in my development. One was uh, deciding that I was going to uh, pioneer an, an alloy. So I, I made my, you know, this is one of the problems of making things. It, it's, a, <laughs> it's a double-edged sword because once you know you can make stuff, you want to just make everything from scratch. And then you realize, oh, this is not very scalable, <laughs> you know, making everything. But because I had decided on making my own alloy, that was sort of a very, very sort of determining factor. Um, 18 karat gold is 75% gold and 25% other alloys. And depending on, and you have to alloy it because uh, it's too soft uh, otherwise. So, you know, in order to work it. So I futzed around with mixing metals until I got to the color I wanted and then, you know, discovered, oh my God, A, it's like, it's a, it's an asset because every single thing is going to be unique and handmade. And, you know, there is no going out and buying this in a store. Uh, but, but the flip side is you have to make everything from scratch. Uh, so, um, that really determined how fast I could work, how much I could work, you know, the investment required, you know, it really had a trickle down effect on all aspects of the business. And so you do things in a much more purposeful manner. 
so you're not sort of willy-nilly deciding to try a thousand things, you know, because you have finite resources. So you're thinking of your, your process is much more sort of thought through. And uh, I was lucky, um, I was lucky from a business perspective because I decided very early on that I was gonna build my business around my talents and, you know, and not try to like read a book on how to build a business. Uh, and I knew that I had to spend all of my time designing and producing and none of my time selling. So, so I decided, you know what, I'm not gonna do trade shows. I'm not gonna try to sell to a million places. Like I know what the 10 stores are that, I, that would understand what I do, appreciate what I do, you know, and be willing, you know, to be in it for the long haul. So I got on a plane. It's like, I don't want to talk to the buyer. I want to talk to the president of the company. And, you know, and I want to talk to the president of the company. And Well, let me ask. So does that mean no direct to consumer either? Well, we're talking about 25 years ago. Right. So, uh, or 30 years ago. So the web was non-existent. Uh, I mean, was nascent and really was not part of the business idea at the time. And a store was too much work. Mm -hmm. uh, so I didn't want to be in a store. You know, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't the maker in the store. That's not my yeah. profile. Well, and it was a time when retail, I mean, Burgos, you're talking Western class, right? And Bernie, Barney's was thriving. Um, and they were all stable and they were your partners. And, um, not to take you off track, but to, to, to bring that into the mix. I mean, retail has obviously been through the ringer and back. Um, and the advent of the internet is, is definitely, the, those were some of the seeds. I mean, you put the pandemic aside, you put other, but you know, a lot of the seeds of say Barney's bankruptcy were sown in, in direct to consumer platforms and, and the internet. So you've obviously pivoted and you have a beautiful store on Madison Avenue. And so obviously, you know, you, you are also a retailer, but you're large enough organizationally that you have retailers that do that for you. You have people on staff and you're not the maker in the back room. Um, yeah, you know, I've been extremely lucky my whole career, uh, but I attribute that to like paying attention, <laughs> meaning, you know, you have to be on your toes, you know, and like this idea that can I do something that I can recover from, you know, is like a daily practice for me, you know, because the world is changing so dramatically and so quickly, so much faster than it ever was, you know, changed before. You know, when I think of my career path, I think, you know, if I hadn't had, if it hadn't been, you know, 30 years ago when people had more time and, you know, merchants were really merchants and they would actually teach you stuff, you know, about what consumers are looking for and why you, it should matter to you and, you know, how you might modify your designs, you know, to, to sort of consider a larger audience or whatever, um, or simply improve, you know, the functionality of your product, then, you know, I would, I wouldn't have made it. You know, I, because I actually had a lot of teachers, you know, along the way. Nowadays, that, those, that um, expertise is much more diluted, you know, because uh, those people with historical knowledge are in completely different channels, you know, 
you know, working for brands or working for websites or working for, you know, multi-brand environments that, you know, have no time to deal with, you know, this um, sort of nurturing of talent from the ground up. Yeah. So uh, I forget why exactly I was saying that, but, um, but in terms of like being lucky and pivoting in my business, uh, you know, the, there are certain macroeconomic trends that, you know, there are a lot of things that you can um, uh, affect, you know, because it's your business and you're doing it and you wake up and you make decisions about how you're going to do stuff. And then there are macroeconomic, you know, trends that have nothing to do with you and, you know, and you either benefit or not from them, you know, depending on the timing. But if you pay attention, which is, you know, sort of one of the key sort of ingredients for, you know, continuing to remain relevant is um, you can take advantage of, you, you know, you can spot them and you can take advantage of them. You know, how, how, how can I take advantage of this? So the possibly the biggest, there are two big things that happened in the course of my career. Uh, one was the explosion of accessories. Uh, accessories used to be exactly that, accessories. And the fact that they're still called accessories is sort of interesting because they're usually the moneymaker of most businesses, you know, and yet they're still an accessory to the main category. Right. But uh, so accessories exploded and what used to cost $100 now cost $2,000. So making gold jewelry that had a great price, uh, price value relationship became comparable to handbags and shoes. So jewelry that heretofore, I mean, fine jewelry that heretofore had been sort of relegated to this gifting realm, right. migrated into the accessory world and mostly self-purchase. So this enormous sort of self-purchase uh, trend that has evolved and I guess at this point has solidified to the point that you don't even remember kind of a time when it was not the case, mm. but believe me, <laughs> it was not the case before, uh, you know, catapulted my business kind of overnight into a completely different realm. Yeah. So that was one thing. And once I sort of, once I realized that I like totally leaned into that, you know, it's like, I'm going to give women what women want. You know, I'm designing for women. I'm not designing for the guy who's looking for a birthday present or a, an anniversary present. I'm designing for women, you know? And so the jewelry has to answer to all the things that women want. It has to be sexy. It has to be beautiful. It has to have a great price value relationship. It has to be, and it has to have all of these attributes clearly, you know, without knowing the brand, without, you know, me having to like, sort of serenade you for a half an hour about, you know, how it's made and so on and so forth. Like all of these things have to be self-evident in the product. So that was like one instance of like really understanding how to take advantage of a macro shift that wasn't, you know, my doing. Right. The, you know, and then the more recent one is the advent of the internet as like the place to, toot your horn and tell your story and sell, you know? And once upon a time, there was this idea that people would feel intimidated about buying something that is as 
understood to be generally as personal as jewelry online. And of course, that's not the case. You know, people have become so comfortable with purchasing online, certainly in this country, um, that, uh, you know, the jewelry does just fine, you know, online. And so again, it's like, if you know that and you believe it, you know, the sky's the limit. You know, you don't have to be afraid of price points. I mean, one thing that has been interesting for me to, to notice in the, you know, in the real physical world of selling jewelry to people that I talk to is if the experience is beautiful, how much, how much is it is the last question, not the first question. You know, so as long as you tell the story and, and make it look beautiful and photograph it properly and give it, you know, it's due, uh, people will buy it, whether it's online or offline. Uh, you know, you just have to, you know, treat the product like you believe in it. Yeah. Do you try to treat the store, which is gorgeous? Um, do you hope that the website is a reflection of the store? Do they work? Are they cousins? Or are, do you find it difficult to trans, transmit 3D reality to the 2D online presence? Well, uh, again, you know, in the learning curve of, you know, running a complex business, you know, because graphic design and creating a, an identity uh, in the visual world is a completely different skill set, you know, and I am, I would say, finally now getting you know, finally coming full circle. And actually next season, I feel we are gonna be there finally where the design and where all the other elements of the brand are finally catching up to the product. Because for so long, I was just so concentrated on the product that I kind of woke up one day and said, oops, where's the, the brand doesn't have an identity. Like the product has an identity. But the brand itself, like all these things that I know to be true about the product have not been communicated with the same level of sophistication, mm -hmm. you know? So, uh, because, you know, those, they're different, you know, they're different talents and you need to attract those talents and you need to retain those talents and you need to grow side by side with those talents, you know, because I think, you know, at some point earlier we were saying, you can't just like glom these things onto one another and think that they're gonna work. You know, it's like, I'll get a CEO and a CFO and a creative director and a production person and, you know, and bang, you know, no. These talents are wildly expensive today, um, which leads me to another question. You know, a lot of brands, uh, not necessarily jewelry brands, but certainly apparel uh, and other accessories uh, use influencers a lot right? Because the influencer has a built-in number of eyeballs that are going to get those eyeballs on your product. Um, how do you feel about that sort of influencer economy? Do you make use of it? Do you have any women who have been, whether they're models, but you think that they are muses that, that you've used in that way? Or is that sort of antithetic to your product first ethos? Well, I, if you had asked me two years ago, I would have said... <laughs> That's not, that's not my cup of tea. But I think that, you know, it's uh, sort of foolish to say anything doesn't interest you at all, because if something is relevant to the culture, there's something there that is, is, you know, very of the moment, and you should at 
least get to the bottom of it. So uh, I have decided that, you know, there's an appropriate place for influencers. And the, the more, I think the more complicated issue is it's not just advertising through influencers versus advertising in a different, you know, realm or trying to influence behavior through magazine ads versus, you know, private trunk shows. Like you unfortunately have to do everything. And a little bit of everything is, you know, A, a lot of work and hard to manage. But the thing is that you have to, because you need to learn, you don't know which of these things exactly is going to be right for your brand, is going to be, is going to ultimately translate into a sort of successful, you know, customer acquisition, you know, with longevity, you know, like there, you know, and plus it kind of really depends what your, what your desired outcome is, you know, like, am I more interested in finding people that I would really love to be friends with. And I think that, you know, I can't have a customer that I wouldn't go out to dinner with, you know, like that, that used to be my, <laughs> my very high bar. <laughs> right, right. Well, and, and you're right that all of these modes of connecting with customers, it's like a stew. And I've rarely had people uh, on the show who don't say you've got to do it all. Uh, mm -hmm. There really is no one mode. And you've even seen those early sort of direct-to-consumer adopters go now deep on brick-and-mortar retail as experiential, really, marketing, um, which is why I think the store, you know, is, is, is something that probably informs your connectivity to your consumer. Because yeah, and uh, we actually opened a store in Chicago uh, in the middle of the pandemic, and it's a completely new, pioneering a completely new concept, which is open-sell fine jewelry. Oh, wow. Meaning uh, I have always uh, been very sad about the, the fact that jewelry has to be in a case, you know, because then every single interaction with the jewelry is mediated, you know, like you don't get to experience it firsthand without first having to ask a salesperson or so. Uh, and they usually don't know enough about it to talk about it properly, you know, so I felt I need to have a situation that I can control that's really beautiful and where the first impression is the jewelry itself. So the concept is I made this felt box, you know, this little sort of giant felt box and you walk into this felt box and the jewelry is hanging on the walls on these magnetic fixtures. So it's like all made out of felt and you can touch the jewelry and try it on, you know, without having to talk to anybody, you know, which is, 90% of the battle, you know, like if, if a woman wants to, if you assume that a woman can afford it, then you only have to captivate her, you know, her, you know, her style and her sense of, you know, appreciation of beauty. And, you know, so I, that is my, uh, you know, that's my next frontier. Wow. Well, a slightly shifted question, um, you know, we're coming out of the pandemic, so hopefully we won't be communicating on these boxes exclusively much longer, but were there any trends that you saw in your business given the 18 months, two year period where really this was it and you obviously accessorize wonderfully, um, but that women were gravitating to for their Zoom calls or other meetings that were taking place 
where they could feature jewelry and really little else because all you were getting was a frontal presentation. Uh, yes, I mean, we had, uh, you know, like everybody, we had a difficult year, but we had an interesting year in our shift in our direct to consumer business. Uh, you know, so our web business exploded and it was, you know, at first it was sort of interesting because you're thinking, wait a second, like, uh, why are people buying jewelry in the first place? You know, <laughs> when the outcome of, of the situation is so uncertain. But, uh, but then you, you just, uh, you embrace it and, uh, and, you, and you think, well, this is an opportunity again to like actually meet the customer. And so we started doing a lot of things that wouldn't have been relevant in any other circumstance, like uh, trainings and educational sort of programming uh, around how the jewelry is made, where it comes from, my process, my tools, my studio, you know, like all these things that then were like, you know, turned out to be great, you know, sort of connection tools, you know, uh, for, you know, people who had now more time on their hands than they had before and wouldn't have necessarily sought out something like this in a different circumstance, but since they're home, you know, why not? And then those turned into, you know, actual customers and people that, you know, are now part of our, you know, entourage. Wow. Well, again, pivoting, but just on a personal note, any, uh, any particular style icons for you, uh, whether it's a family member or, you know, some, some celebrity living or dead who um, you think epitomizes either your style or your aspirational style? Well, Elsa Peretti has always been uh, sort of a, somebody that I looked up to because she was so much her own person. And, you know, and I very much related to her Italian sense of uniqueness. Mm -hmm. And I always felt that that was something that not only I, like, I, I always felt, I don't want to say like an imposter, but I always felt like, how come some people just have that, you know, like uh, flair and I have to work so hard, <laughs> you know? but definitely I think that it's of an eighth, it would have to be my, my muse. Well, and that brings up a related question, maybe a hackneyed question, but, but what I want to ask you for you, what is the difference between fashion and style? So uh, style is something that you're born with and fashion is something that you acquire. So, uh, which seems a little bit unfair, you know, but I think it's true. <laughs> yeah, um, it's certainly, you know, it, it, I think it's, it's uh, your, your style icon exhibits that where it just sort of is. Um, and the confidence that it brings really, you know, seems to be a self-perpetuating cycle. Um, but with but that... With that said, I wouldn't say that one is better than the other necessarily, meaning fashion is a language. And I think that it's uh, relevant to keep abreast with the times because everybody is speaking the same language. And so, you know, if you want to follow Supreme, uh, you know, that does say something about being connected to, you know, what's happening. Yeah. Or maybe there's some more cutting edge you know, brand of the moment. 
<laughs> well, listen, we uh, we are out of time, Hippolita. Thank you so much for joining us. And um, any any last parting comments that you'd like to make, or or nonprofits that you work with that you'd like to give a shout out to for our listeners? Well. I definitely encourage everybody to go on my Artemist website because uh, this is my uh, sort of passion project that I started five years ago. And uh, it's a website that um, it's a marketplace for crafts of all sorts. It has a home decor umbrella idea so that we could um, include as many different crafts as possible. Uh, and uh, the idea there is to, in fact, give an opportunity uh, for those craft people who don't know how to market and sell, you know, direct access to the end consumer. So everything beautiful, and it's beautifully curated and beautifully done. So, you know, if you have some time, go on there and sort of get lost in the rabbit hole of Italian crafts. Artemis, but, uh, but I did, or is there, is Artemis, there? Artemis.com, A-R-T-E-M-E-S-T, Artemis, Artemisteri, it stands for arts and crafts. But then I did, I think I did want to, I mean, I don't know who the audience is exactly and how many young people watch this program, but um, definitely uh, one thing that I felt I needed more reinforcement with along the road was do what you love because since life is hard anyway, you know, it's not like being a lawyer is less hard, you know, you have to love what you do. So don't get discouraged if, if what you love is artistic, you know, which, or in any way related to a field that is traditionally not money-making because you will derive much more enjoyment out of it. Very wise words, a beautiful closing statement. Again, thank you for joining us, listeners. Thanks for listening in. Okay, Bye. thank you. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to The Laws of Style with Douglas Hand. For more information, go to our website at www.hballp.com. And you can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at, at Hand of the Law. Thank you for tuning in and stay stylish.